Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. William Kent Kruger's novel, This Tender Land, recounts the story of one summer in the lives of four young orphans, three of whom have fled an abusive boarding school for indigenous children in Minnesota. The narrator begins with a prologue in which he says, in the beginning, after God labored over the heavens and the earth, the light and the dark, the land and sea and all living things that dwell therein. After he created man and woman, before he rested, I believe God gave us one final gift. Lest we forget the divine source of all that beauty, he gave us stories. He concludes the prologue by saying that the tale he's about to tell will include courage, cowardice, love, and betrayal. And he says, and of course, there will be hope. In the end, isn't that what every good story is about? What does make a good story? This question prompted me to think about some of the stories that have been favorites in our home, many of which we introduced to our daughter as she was growing up, and two we discovered together. The two we discovered together were the Golden Compass and the Harry Potter series. Among those we introduced her to were The Secret Garden, The Little Princess, A Wrinkle in Time, and The Chronicles of Narnia. In The Golden Compass, the protagonist is a presumably orphaned young girl named Lyra, who leaves the security of her home at Oxford to rescue her friend Roger. Roger and other street children have been kidnapped and made subject to experimentation that destroys their souls. Harry Potter is orphaned as an infant and is forced to live with his muggle family members until he discovers his true identity as a wizard and then is forced to engage in a fierce battle against the evil Lord Voldemort. In the secret garden, Mary is orphaned while living in India and moves to a lifeless mansion on the moors of England. The discovery of a secret garden eventually brings health to Mary, to her cousin Colin, and to her despondent uncle. In A Wrinkle in Time, Meg, her brother, and a friend have to test her to save Mr. Murray from Camazots. And finally, there is that wonderful allegory by C.S. Lewis about the adventures of four siblings who are called upon to set wrongs right with the help of the lion Aslan in the land of Narnia. In addition to several of the protagonists being orphans, There are other similar themes that recur in these and numerous other stories and fairy tales. 
there is almost always someone in peril and in need of being rescued. The designated rescuer is most often an unlikely choice because he or she is small, weak, and young. They often involve some reversal of fortune or circumstance. And yes, there is hope. A prince and a pauper exchange roles and see life from the other's perspective. An indulged and pampered child is orphaned and forced to find her own entertainment for the first time in her life. This dyspeptic child is the most unlikely person to bring health to her cousin and uncle. Another orphan child is harassed and bullied by his cousin, unaware of his magical powers and destiny. The reign of the White Witch ends with the death of Aslan on a stone table and with his subsequent resurrection. In each of these stories, there is a theme of a reversal of fate, of fortune, and of status. These are the same th among the themes that are woven into our own story of faith that we recount during the liturgical year. Today is the feast of Christ the King. On this last Sunday of Pentecost, the week prior to the season of Advent, we here recounted the apocalyptic visions of Daniel and of John. In Revelation, John says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, every eye will see him. And Daniel recounts his night vision, in which he saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. To this one was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. In the story of our faith, there is reversal of fate, of fortune, and of status. The prince becomes a pauper and then a king. The one whom Daniel saw, who was like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, descends from these clouds and is found in a manger in Bethlehem. Magi from the east go to Jerusalem in search of the newly born king of the Jews, assuming that this infant king will be born in David's city. Instead, they find a poor family and a vulnerable infant. The epistle to the Philippians has the most succinct description of this reversal of status. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. In the story of our faith, there is a need for a rescuer. In the story of our faith, we are the ones whose lives are at risk. Our lives have been imperiled by sin and by the impossibility of righteousness. 
In Revelation, John says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. In the story of our faith, not only is the rescuer an apparently unlikely choice, but the means of our rescue is even more unlikely. His life in exchange for ours. His blood shed on the cross as the means of our reconciliation to God. Aslan on the stone table, Jesus Christ on the cross. At this point, I want to clarify that when I speak about the story of faith, I'm not referring to story as in any way a fiction. The novel, This Tender Land, is a fictional story about four vagabond children. But at the same time, it's a very real story about indigenous children and the boarding schools in which they were housed and incarcerated. When I read the recent exposés about similar Canadian schools, they took on much more weight and clarity because of the fictional children, Odie, Albert, and Mose. There is, of course, one significant and essential difference between these stories that capture our attention and engage our imaginations and the story of our faith. The difference is that the story of our faith is meant to capture more than our attention and imaginations. The story of our faith is meant to lay claim to our very lives. The story of our faith is not the fiction of our faith. The story of our faith speaks to who God is, what God has done for us, and how our lives are meant to be transformed by this one who loves us, who freed us from our sins by his blood, and who has made us a community meant to serve this God. The story of our faith is always inviting us to look back, to remember what God has already done for us, but also to look forward in anticipation of that future time when Christ will return in power and glory. Every Sunday we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, the season of the church year that has us looking both backwards and forwards. The word itself means the arrival of a particularly important person or thing. Quite simply, we're awaiting the arrival of Christ. We are remembering and awaiting his unlikely arrival as a weak and vulnerable infant. But we're also awaiting with hope and expectation the day of his return. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sin release us, let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Advent is meant to be both a season of anticipation and of preparation. But it's also a season when the sacred and the secular clash head on. The secular season begins with the indulgent feasting on Thanksgiving. And though the sacred reminder of the gift of the Christ child and the gifts from the Magi 
infuse the season, the focus of our attention tends to be less on Christ and more on Santa. We know best how to anticipate and prepare for the secular season. We bake, we decorate, we shop, we anticipate time with loved ones. And this year, our anticipation and preparation for Christmas might well be different from last year when many of us could not be with our loved ones because of COVID. This year, we might well want the holidays to be even more special than usual. But how do we prepare for that day John anticipated in his revelation when every eye beholds the return of Christ the King? The liturgical color for Advent is purple, the color for repentance. Advent was initially observed in the Christian church in much the same way that Lent was, as a season of prayer and fasting. Now, I doubt that any of us, myself included, will be asking, what should we give up for Advent? Perhaps the best that we will do is to attempt some moderation in the weeks to come. Nevertheless, we can see Advent as an opportunity to carve out some quiet and repentant space in our lives and in our hearts to receive both Advents the advent of the Christ child's birth, and the advent of Christ the King's return in power and glory. During this season of Advent, let us listen with our hearts to this remarkable story of our faith. Christ the King did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He became God with us, God like us, to rescue us and save us. And so to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, be glory and dominion forever and forever. Amen. This is the story of our faith. We were in peril, in need of rescue. Our rescuer was most unlikely. But as is the case with all good stories, there is hope. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, hope of all the world, thou art. Amen. <laughs>